Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Before we start the show, I want to let you know something. My latest novel, Personal Fable, is free for the next uh, few days. So if you're hearing this ad, it's currently free if you're a Kindle user. So just look it up on your Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can even get one of those for free by getting the free Kindle app on your phone. And then head over, get Personal Fable, have a read, and if you love it, leave a review. And I hope you love the story. Now, let's get on with the podcast. P.S. The promotion runs the 11th, 12th and 13th of March. Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, talking about book three, chapter 10 of War and Peace. And then I will be reading the Andalus Lewis translation of chapter 11. Do you think there is a degree of competition between the people who fight and the people who stay behind? Do you think the other soldiers were exaggerating their victories when telling Rostov what happened? Probably were, weren't they? Why slash why not? Why do you think Rostov has such reverence for the Emperor? Do you consider him a reliable narrator? He's not a narrator. I didn't write those questions, by the way. They're by user 7 of 9. Um, reliable narrator? I guess you see through his eyes, don't you? But... <clears throat> Ripster66 says, everyone seemed pretty pumped up to go to battle and then find out your battalion is being held in reserve is a major disappointment. I do think there's a bit of competition of bragging rights at seeing battle. Those held back are just waiting and thinking they could do better if they were up there fighting. I think they, I think we are learned that we can really trust what most soldiers, we can't really trust what most soldiers say about battle. No one puts themselves in a bad light and everyone is a hero. I'm not really sure why Rostov is so in love with the Emperor. He's young and impressionable, but it seems even the older officers are infatuated with him. There was that one line where it was like, not quite as much as Rostov though. I think Rostov is just a little bit extra with it. Warren Kovafi says, okay, I guess we all know who is going to drink the Kool-Aid, don't we? My God, Rostov, take it easy, man. This fanaticism with the Tsar, someone whose passing glance is enough to make Rostov, Rostov want to sacrifice himself just to impress Alexander, is quickly making him my least favourite character. Mind you, this is the same Rostov who turned tail against the French, and now he's fantasising about being a martyr. He's very young, I think, is what you got to remember with Rostov. He's 20, and he's in a war. You know, how crazy is that? Um, he's a funny character, Rostov. Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, I guess I'm feeling a little differently from a number of people here. I am fascinated by Rostov's fawning over the Tsar. It's building up such tension for me. How far will he go to prove his love slash loyalty? I can't fathom feeling this kind of reverence. What does this say about him? Or does it say something about more about the time and place? November 16, God but we are getting close. Yeah, we are getting close. Oh yeah, we're getting close. If you know your history, we're getting close. Um, you know, I think it's just like Beatlemania with Rostov. I think you've, you, we've seen that kind of reverence in crowds. Uh, and Napoleon was the ultimate rock star then, and Rostov has sort of transferred that onto his emperor, Alexander, and um, just fangirling over him. I think you could only get that kind of reverence in a, in a teenager, really, don't you think? Maybe I'm maybe that's not the case, but um, 
it seems very kind of adolescent almost. Uh, okay, we are going to keep reading. I'm ready to keep reading. Um, what are we up to? 11, chapter 11. I managed to get another chapter translated today. I'm happy to announce, so that's cool. It goes like this. The next day, the emperor stopped at Wischau and had to call on his doctor, Velier, to see him a bunch of times. At HQ and among the troops, the gossip spread that the emperor was crook as a dog. The people around him reported that he'd gotten really a really shitty night's sleep and hadn't eaten all day. The reason he was sick was because his sensitive and empathetic mind was overwhelmed by the sight of the killed and wounded soldiers. At daybreak on the 17th, a French officer with a flag of truce had rocked up, demanding an audience with the Russian emperor, and was brought into Wischau from our outposts. This officer's name was Savary. The emperor had only just put his head down for a nap, so Savary had to wait. At midday he was allowed in to see the emperor, and an hour later he rode off with Prince Dolgurakov to the advanced post of the French army. There was a rumour going round that Savary was sent to propose a meeting with Napoleon to Alexander. The whole army was proud and overjoyed when Alexander refused the personal interview and, and instead sent Prince Dolgurakov, the victor at Wischau, with Savary to negotiate with Napoleon, if by some slim chance Napoleon really did want peace. It was near, nearly evening when Dolgurikov returned, went straight to the Tsar, and stayed alone with him for ages. On the 18th and 19th of November, the army moved forward two days' march, and the enemy's outposts retreated after we shot at them a little bit. In the highest circles of the army, a pretty full-on mania swept over at around noon and kept on through the day, and spilled over into the next morning on the 20th, when the legendary Battle of Austerlitz was fought. Before the mania started, on the 19th, in the morning, the activity, meaning the excited talking, running back and forth and sending out adjutants, was mostly taking part in the Emperor's headquarters, but as noon approached, the hustle and bustle spilled out and reached Kutuzov's headquarters and the leaders of Columns and their staff. <clears throat> By evening, the adjutants had spread the hype to all ends of the army, and on the night of the 19th, each of the 80,000 Allied troops rose from the uh, their bivouacs to the buzz. Oops, sorry, just correcting typos as I go. Each of the eighty thousand Allied troops rose from their bivouacs to the buzz of voices, and the army swayed and started moving in in one enormous six-mile-long mass. The hotbed of that hotbed of activity in the Emperor's headquarters in the morning was like when the biggest main cog in a clock tower starts moving, jolting all the others into action. One wheel slowly moved, another started, a third and more wheels faster and faster, levers and cogs shifting into gear, chimes playing, cuckoo birds popping out, and the hands moving to point to specific numbers. Wait, I'm just describing a clock now. Just as the main mechanism of a clock does, so the main mechanism of a military machine will end in a final result. And just as indifferently chilled are the smaller parts as they wait for their movement to reach them. Wheels creak. I don't like that chill. Indifferently. Uh, just as indifferent. 
uh, and just as indifferent are the smaller parts as they wait for the movement to reach them. Wheels creak on their axles, cogs engage one another, and the revolving pulleys whir quickly. And God damn it, I'm describing a clock again. What was my point? Ah, and a part of the clock, uh, military, that hasn't been reached just yet is motionless, as if it would be happy to chill there for a hundred years. But as soon as the lever catches it, the wheel creaks into life and joins the common motion, the purpose of which is beyond its individual scope. And if we expand the clock metaphor several more miles past its breaking point, just like in the clock, the result of the complicated motion of countless wheels and pulleys results in just a slow and controlled movement of the hands showing the time. So the result of all the human complex... Sorry, so the result of all the complex human activity of 160,000 Russians and French, their passions, desires, remorse, humiliations, pride, fear, enthusiasm, resulted in one side losing the Battle of Austerlitz, the so-called Battle of the Three Emperors. That is to say, just a slow tick on the clock of human history. Prince Andrei was on duty that day, attending to the commander-in-chief. At six in the morning, Kutuzov went to the Emperor's headquarters, and after staying just a short while with the Tsar, he went to see the Grand Marshal of the court, Count Tolstoy. Bolkonsky took the opportunity to go in and get some details of the coming fight from Dolgurikov. He reckoned what Kutuzov was pissed off about. He reckons that Kutuzov was pissed off about something, and that the people at headquarters were pissed off at him, and also that at the Emperor's headquarters everyone was talking to Kutuzov as if they knew something he didn't, and that's why he wanted to speak to Dolgurikov. "'Well, g'day there, mate. How are you?' said Dolgurikov, who was sitting at tea with Bilibin. "'The party starts tomorrow. How's the old bugger? Grumpy?' "'I don't know about Grumpy, but I dare say he'd like to chime in on this one, on this debacle.' But they heard him out at the Council of War, and they'll let him speak when he starts talking some sense, but to dilly-dally around now while Bonaparte is shit-scared of a fight is ridiculous. "'So you saw him, did you?' said Prince Andre. "'So what's Bonaparte like? Were you impressed?' "'Um, just moving that around.' Tell me then, what's Bonaparte like? Were you impressed? Yeah, I did see him, and I'm convinced his biggest fear right now is a general engagement, repeated Dolgurikov, evidently chuffed with this conclusion he'd drawn from his interview with Napoleon. If he wasn't scared of a fight, why did he ask for that interview? Why negotiate? Why retreat? When to retreat is so contrary to his usual method of fighting a war. Believe me, mate, he's shitting himself. Afraid of a general battle. His hour has come, mark my words. Yeah, but tell me what he's like, huh? said Prince Andre again. He is a guy in a grey overcoat who desperately wanted me to call him Your Majesty and who got his knickers in a knot when I didn't. That's the kind of guy he is, nothing more, replied Dolgurikov, looking round at Bilibin with a smile. Listen, I respect Kutuzov, he continued, but we'd be a fine bunch of dickheads if we sat on our hands and gave Napoleon time to escape or come up with some trick. Now that we, for sure, have him in our grasp. No, we can't forget Suvorov and his rule, not to put yourself in a position to be attacked, but at yourself to attack. Trust me, in war, the energy of young men often shows the way better than all the experience of a bunch of old slowpokes. 
But in what position are we attacking him? I went out to the outpost today and it's not possible to say where his main forces are situated, said Prince Andre. He wanted to explain to Dolgurukov a plan of attack that he'd come up with himself. It doesn't matter, Dolgurukov said quickly. And getting up, he spread a map on the table. All eventualities have been foreseen if he's standing before Brun. And Prince Dolgurukov quickly and sloppily explained Weyrath's plan of a flanking movement. Prince Andre, in reply, started to explain his own plan, which could easily have been as good as Weyrath's, other than its key disadvantage being that Weyrath's had already been approved. As soon as Prince Andre started to explain why his plan was better than Weyrath's, Prince Dolgurukov stopped listening, and stared blankly, not at the map, but at Prince Andre's face. Anyway, there's going to be a council of war at Kutuzov tonight. You can say all this there, remarked Dolgurukov. I'll do that, said Prince Andre, moving away from the map. What are you guys on about, said Bilibin, who till then had listened to their conversation with a smile, and was now evidently ready to crack a joke. Whether we win or lose tomorrow, the glory of the Russian army is secure, except for your mate Kutuzov, there's not a single Russian in command of a column. The commanders are Herr General Wimpfen, Le Comte de Langeron, Le Prince de Liechtenstein, Le Prince de Hochlol, and finally Prish Prish, and so on, like all those Polish names. All right, that's enough, smartass, said Dolgurukov. You're talking shit anyway. There are two Russians, Milorodovich and Dokutrov, and there would be a third, Count Arakchiv, if he didn't chicken out. Whatever. I think Kutuzov's come out, said Prince Andre. Good luck, gents. All the best, he added, and then he shook their hands and left. On the way home, Prince Andre couldn't help but ask Kutuzov, who was sitting silently beside him, what he reckoned of tomorrow's battle. Kutuzov looked sternly at his adjutant, and after a moment replied, I think we're going to lose, and that's what I told Count Tolstoy, and I asked him to tell the Emperor, and what do you reckon was his response? All right, mate. I'm busy here with my rice and cutlets. Take care of military matters yourself. Yep, that's the answer I got. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. Kutuzov's trying to warn them that he thinks they're going to lose and they're just ignoring him. And in fact, they're not even ignoring them. They're kind of shunning him. Damn. Alright, Guys, have your say about that one over at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow.